Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining us today. As uh, I can see people trickling into the room, um, welcome. We're pleased to have um, all of you and a wonderful group of panelists today um, uh, for this event focused on reviving reviving economic opportunities for women affected by conflict, dis displacement, and COVID-19. So um, I think just in terms of framing up the session, um, I think it's clear to all of us here that it wouldn't be an under understatement to say that COVID-19 has had both a destructive and debilitating effect for many around the world. Um, aside from the grave health impacts, people living in poverty across the globe have felt sharp and um, sustained in many cases economic impacts um, of both the pandemic itself and then also the responses to, to try and mitigate um, transmission. Women and particularly women entrepreneurs have been at the center of this and the results can only be um, that much more uh, uh, severe in context of displacement and crisis. Just some data to, to help us think about the extent of this. The World Bank's pulse, uh, business pulse surveys that were conducted between April and August 2020 in low and middle income countries showed that 84% of firms had experienced a reduction in sales in the 30 days before the, before the interviews were conducted as compared to the same period the year before. On average, across country sales dropped by 49% so nearly half the amount of business compared to the same periods in the previous year. And this reduction persisted even 10 weeks after the peak of the crisis. At the height of the pandemic related lockdowns at the end of May, 2020, there was a seven percentage point gap in closure rates for between women led businesses and male led. So 27% of women led businesses closing as compared to 20% of male led businesses. These gender gaps in temporary business clo closures have been the largest in countries that had the strictest lockdown places, policies in place. So during today's discussion, we're going to take this lens, the, the view of women and entrepreneurs, um, women in business and the lens of the pandemic and apply an additional one to that, which is around crisis and, um, and displacement. This unprecedented, this unprecedented economic crisis requires policy interventions that support not just the immediate response to the shock, but also the longer term recovery of businesses. And without a gender intentional approach to short term mitigation and long term recovery, the pandemic could intensify structural gender inequalities and eliminate many of the gains that have been made in recent years. Today, we'll be hearing we'll be hearing from a range of people involved, from those affected on the front line to policymakers and private sector advocates and supporters of women's economic empowerment. We'll also hear key findings from a new ODI IRC report exploring women's experiences of the COVID pandemic with primary research conduct conducted um, in Greece, Jordan and Nigeria. During the discussion today, we'll be asking two main questions. First, what can be done to better support the needs of displaced women as we emerge from the pandemic? And second, who needs to be involved to make this, um, to make this uh, a reality? So a few, uh, a few points of housekeeping. I know that many of you joining today's call bring expertise and experiences of supporting displaced women's economic well-being. So we'd love to hear your perspectives too. 
You can share your thoughts and reflections in the chat. And if you have a question for our panel, please use the Q&A box to send these in and I'll be putting those into to the panel a little bit later on. If you're on Twitter, we'll be posting um, the hashtag and Twitter handles in the chat. And there are also, for those who may um, want it, there are closed captions available during this event. And you can find the little button on the bottom of your screen. Just a reminder that the event is being recorded. The video will be available in the um, event webpage in a couple of days time. And you can listen back on the discussion through the ODI event podcast channel. So let's introduce everyone today. So I'm Radha Rajkotia. I'm the Chief Research and Policy Officer at Innovations P for Poverty Action. And I'll be chairing the panel today. I'm delighted to welcome Noor Gerard, who will be providing some opening remarks to our discussion today. Noor is the Chief Executive Officer of City Jordan. I'm also very pleased to be joined by Annabelle Patrick. Annabelle is an entrepreneur and in 2019 received a business grant from the IRC and City Foundation to support her real retail trade in palm oil, crayfish and gari. And she currently runs a restaurant in the, at the Federal Secretariat Yola and combines that with her retail trade. Welcome Annabelle. A very warm welcome also to Sarah Ghazi, who will be on our panel today. Sarah is IRC's Country Director for Jordan. Welcome. And, and also will be joined by Pippa Bird. Pippa is the Head of Development for the UK's government, the UK government's Foreign um, Commonwealth and Development Office in Jordan. And lastly, will be uh, our final panelist will be um, Abigail Hunt, a research fellow within ODI's Equity and Social Policy Program and one of the authors of the report I mentioned um, previously. Abigail specializes in women's rights and gender equality and her current research focuses on the gendered dynamics of labor and care, informal economies and the future of work and social protection. And last but not least, we'll be looking forward to um, some closing comments from David Miliband, President and CEO of the IRC. David will be um, providing some closing reflections on the discussion today. So um, thanks. Um, with that, I'll hand over to Noor Gerard to provide some opening remarks. Thank you, Rata. Good morning, good afternoon. It brings me great pleasure to be representing City in this event that brings together experts and policymakers to identify the critical steps needed to ensure that both policy and finance respond to the needs and priorities emerging from the pandemic and more specifically to those of women. We all felt the impact of the pandemic, though at varying levels. Yet imagine how it has been um, for disadvantaged and displaced women already impacted by gender discrimination and bias. Being privileged to be close to programs sponsored by City in partnership with the IRC, what really used to give me sleepless nights during lockdowns was the thought of how disadvantaged women and their families were coping with and even surviving the unexpected imposed hardship. According to the UNHCR, the number of displaced people has reached more than 80 million at the end of 2020, and that almost doubled from 2010 levels. And unfortunately, this number continues to increase. And more than 50% are women and girls whom, if not given the opportunity to live, learn, and be economically empowered, will spill over to their families and communities, aggravating the crisis and making it even harder and longer to recover. 
a call to action is needed in which the muted voices of the underprivileged should be raised and included within global and national policies. Research shows that hiring refugee women could contribute to 1.4 trillion US dollars per annum to global GDP, hence we all win. And the policies should aim to addressing social, cultural, and economic barriers, instilling systemic and long-lasting change. Additionally, we all believe that we are in this together and the collaborative efforts of governments, private sector, NGOs, and, uh, and financial community are important. Unilateral one-sided contributions can generate some results. Yet, collective efforts will yield amplified impact. Um, at City, we believe in the importance of partnership and that our role extends beyond being a global bank to being a global influencer and catalyst of a better future. To this end, City Foundation and the IRC teamed up in 2017 to support refugees and other vulnerable young people from host countries to build livelihood, beginning in Greece, Jordan, and Nigeria under the Resilient Futures Program Phase 1. In 2019, that partnership was renewed and expanded to include other cities in Germany, Lebanon, and Cameroon. The two-phase grant of US dollars 5.5 million have helped more than 3,000 youth to actively engage in local markets and communities. A third phase under the Resilient Futures Program, which we are delighted to announce today, will be launched early next year and will have a new focus on building business resiliency in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic in the six countries mentioned earlier and expanded to Mexico. The program will help about, about 2,100 young people, 50 of which, 50% 50 of which are women, affected by crisis and displacement to weather the global economic crisis and emerge as more resilient contributors to their local economies and communities. We also um, expect the program to help in the creation of nearly uh, 400 enterprises and more than 100 entities will be restructured and expanded. We're also excited to partner with IRC and ODI in funding the new research, which will have great impact in shaping response and strategies, including ours. We have a fantastic panel for you today to discuss the new research. So thank you for joining the session and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Over to you, Radha, thank you. Thank you so much, Noor, thanks for those. Um... Uh, reflections and also for your and uh, your and Citibank's um, commitment to, to these issues. It's wonderful to hear um, the progress that's being made. So let's um, with that, let's turn over to the panel. So Sarah, um, let's start with you. So just as a reminder, Sarah is the country director for IRC Jordan. So Sarah, can you paint us a picture of the economic needs of women affected by displacement in Jordan and, and really what that's looked like since the start of the pandemic? Thank you, Radha. Um, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure to be part of this very important panel and this very interesting and important discussion. Um, as you so aptly put, COVID has ravaged the whole world and Jordan also is one of the, the countries that has been very, very badly affected. The Jordanian economy, even before the difficult circumstances caused by COVID, 
was under was undergoing a very slow economic growth and had an already high unemployment rate of 19% over a number of years. The unexpected shock of COVID and the lockdowns and the consequent slowing of the economy added even more pressure to the already weak economy with unemployment rates now up up towards 24 and 25% in the country. This was a setback in particular for Syrian refugees rebuilding their lives in Jordan, including women who were working for the very first time after being displaced and many in more non-traditional sectors like plumbing and beekeeping. While Jordan has explicitly included women refugee populations in the COVID-19 policy from the beginning of the pandemic response, both refugees and vulnerable host community members remain very economically vulnerable, as many typically seek work in the informal economy, which was the most heavily impacted, particularly by the lockdown measures. And those lockdown measures lasted a very, very long time in Jordan. The COVID-19 pandemic also had a clear negative impact on women business owners impacted by displacement, including facing a lack of capital and legal restrictions related to COVID-19, such as movement restrictions, curfews, and limits to the hours that they were able to operate or even in-person operation of the business. In Jordan, these business owners reported having much fewer customers, if any at all, for their businesses during the pandemic. When we look at the national policy level, the Jordan Compact was one of the first refugee support models that demonstrated how humanitarian and development funding could be combined through multi-year multi grants and concessional loans. Consequently, the Jordanian government created the Jordan Response Plan for the Syrian crisis or the JRP. Although the JRP included a focus on refugee women, protection and empowerment programs, work permits for non-Jordanians, including refugees, are only issued in five occupational sectors and are quite difficult to secure. Only 6.8% of, of the work permits issued to all Syrian refugees in Jordan in 2020 were issued to women. That is a very, very low percentage. It was a slight increase in comparison to 2019, but still very low. These closed employment occupational lists and sectors has meant that refugee women are only, are unable, sorry, are unable to use their skills where they could, con they could actually contribute greatly to the economy and specifically restricts opportunities for skilled and highly skilled educated refugees. What does this mean? It means integrating a, very, a much stronger gender perspective into any new policy planning is essential. Action is needed, for, for example, to address harassment and abuse in public spaces and workplaces. This will end up encouraging women to take up employment outside of the home, which is critical. Furthermore, and despite the Jordan Compact and JRP's effort to support women refugees in Jordan, they're not fully included in social protection mechanisms and social safety nets during COVID-19 pandemic. When we look at future, future iterations, for example, of the Jordan Compact and the subsequent JRPs after 2022, we must first ask vulnerable women themselves what they need 
as their perceptions of policies and programs are often quite different from their official design and implementation. Donor governments, host governments, international organizations, private sector, everybody. We must all cons current, currently considering new, new refugee compacts should ultimately start with what the needs are and how can we be realistic about achieving such, such arrangements. National policy reforms should create much stronger linkages with international policies, such as the Global Compact on Refugees and the Grand Bargain. These all call for economic inclusion for refugee women, regardless of their nationality, through greater access to labor markets, financial services, and social protection. They should also focus on expanding opportunities for entrepreneurship, as well as simplify business reg registration procedures and documentation requirements, as well as promoting women's economic empowerment more in intensively by lifting barriers to work and entrepreneurship that displaced women face. Finally, we need to be realistic, realistic about what can be achieved in the short term, and also about the need for a longer timeframe to tackle underlying structural weaknesses. For instance, widespread informal employment or a volatile investment environment. As challenges in the wider environment can actually limit effectiveness. Future combat, compacts need to be part of a much broader policy framework, promoting reform over the medium to long term, including macroeconomic reforms that prioritize decent work opportunities and economic inclusion outcomes. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Sarah, for that um, view from Jordan. I think just emphasizing the importance of collective action on some of these um, points and really starting with um, the experience of women themselves um, in these settings. So with that, I'd like to move to a different setting now. We're going to head to Annabelle Patrick, um, who uh, is joining us from Nigeria. Um, Annabelle, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. And as an entrepreneur yourself, we'd love to hear more um, just about your experiences um, as an entrepreneur and, and how COVID-19 has really impacted your business. And importantly, I think for people in, um, in this uh, audience to be able to hear what kind of support is it that you think you need um, to enable um, you to get your business up and running again and, and recover from the, the shocks that you've experienced this year? Yes. Hi. Hello. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Annabelle. Yes, coronavirus affects me. So because of the coronavirus, I can't be able to, to travel out. I normally sell my business. I'm, my business is I'm doing crayfish and palm oil. I'm selling food items. So I normally travel to another state to buy the palm oil and the food stuff. So because of the coronavirus, I can't be able to travel out. And the coronavirus affects my business, affect my customers. 
and my, my customer cannot be able to, to go to their market to sell, come and buy from me. So coronavirus affects my business. I can't be able to supply my goods to my customer. My customer cannot be able to come and buy from me. So because of the coronavirus, it really affects me. And what do you think, Annabelle? What, are there any things that you can think of that would help um, to, to make your business activities easier even while coronavirus continues? Yes, I need, I need a support and I need a mentor that would take me through in my business, that my business can move higher that my business will not fall down. So I need a support and I need a mentor that will take me through to achieve my goal, to save money, even to save money in my hand and to maintain my business. So I need mentor and support. I need financially support. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks, Annabelle, for thanks, Annabelle, for sharing those um, those thoughts as well. And um, I, uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk more about um, how that how we can how that is made possible. Um, let's move now to Pippa um, Pippa Bird, who's um, uh, representing uh, FCDO Jordan um, in today's panel. So, Pippa, um, given what we've just heard from uh, Sarah and from Annabelle. Um, what, what, is, what is the role? Where, where, how are donors like the UK government um, supporting women affected by displacement and through the challenges that have arisen from COVID-19? Yeah, thank you. Thank you and good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. Um, pleasure to be here and I'm really pleased that Sarah went uh, ahead of me. Uh, we, are, we are colleagues in, in, in Amman together and she's talked very coherently and succinctly about some of the, the um, astonishing level of impacts in Jordan that women um, and particularly displaced women have faced. And just to sort of reiterate on that, I mean, the majority of refugees lost their incomes overnight. It was, it was, you know, a, a crisis like those of us who've worked in emergencies for a long time have never seen before. And it was happening to every country and to every family and to every individual. Um, I think the, you, the report that we're discussing today and building on today reports that in Jordan, 97% of respondents said that they had experienced a negative impact. Um, so the scale uh, and the breadth of it. But, and as Sarah mentioned, uh, with you know, women's unemployment, I think is now around 33%, youth unemployment at 50%, um, and Jordan has only 15% of women uh, in, in the labor force. So already coming from a difficult place, but now in an extremely difficult place and in, 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 in a fragile economy. Um, so moving on to think a little bit about what donors can do as, as founders and as funders, I think. Um, one of the things is to look really hard at the barriers that women face um, to become an entrepreneur, to move from informal, the informal sector to formal sector to develop the right skills. Sarah mentioned about the compact and the importance of women's voice within that if there was to be any revisiting of that. And I think that's exactly right. We have to, we have to listen to, to, to them 
people understand the barriers that they face. They're often around social norms. Um, tricky for a donor agency to engage in some ways on social norms, but nevertheless uh, critical. Uh, in a country like Jordan and elsewhere, we need to think about issues around documentation um, and, and, and issues around childcare. Um, in, in the Jordanian culture in particular, that's a limiting factor. Um, so that's the first one, is who are we listening to and how are we designing and building the voice that we're using to design and build those programmes? Um, I think another way that women's voices it should be coming through is through women-led organisations. As donors, we can expand um, the sorts of partnerships that we look at. Uh, it's great to see City on here and looking at increasingly at sort of public-private partnerships, but also how we engage with community-based organisations and the localization agenda. And for us as donors to recognise our limitations and then seek out the partners uh, that, that complement um, and can build in that very much bottom-up approach. And then I think another one which is really critical is preventing harm, the, the, the resorting to harmful strategies or negative coping strategies. And this is where social protection played an incredible role across the world, um, including in Jordan. Not enough um, uh, and not to all parts of the, of the people that needed it, but nevertheless important. So continuing to build on what we've learned during the pandemic on the importance of social protection uh, is, is, seems to, is, is a really critical thing to stop women falling back below where they were. So maybe I'll just touch on what that looks like for the UK in Jordan and how we've looked to respond. So first of all, we, we supported emergency social protection through, during the pandemic um, and have continued to do that through 2021, but we've then taken those lessons and looked at how we expand our work on social protection push the barriers a little bit into the informal sector, which is um, comes with a high level of complexity. The uh, labour market in, um, and, uh, in, in Jordan is extremely complicated, uh, but really beginning to think about where do we find uh, women working primarily in the informal sector, where is, the protect is protection, social protection uh, need to consider also in terms of removing barriers to a shift towards formality. There's quite a lot of discussion about how people can move from the informal sector to the formal sector, so from uh, non-contributory to contributory support. But we also know that there are real risks there where we uh, we can they can actually be poverty-inducing if we uh, engage in the informal sector um, without really thinking through what the unintended consequences might be. Uh, for the UK, we're also really looking, there has been opportunities, it's not all completely uh, uh, doom and gloom, so the tech sector is expanding um, and we've supported a development policy loan uh, through the World Bank, which is looking at youth tech and skills and how women can uh, develop, and youth developer skills to take advantage of jobs where they are emerging, so that's an expanding sector. And then I would move on to, to, to the areas of support which are critical enabling environment for, for, for women and particularly displaced women affected by uh, COVID-19. So we, we have refocused quite a lot of support around uh, the management of gender-based violence and support to survivors. The figures of uh, increases in gender-based violence have been really frightening. Um, so working with police and others on that. We've also focused on catch-up education and a safe return to school for all. And so if girls, particularly, may be the last ones to feel safe to return 
in these situations. So we're trying to make sure that the girls do go back to school um, and that where then all children, both Jordanian and refugees, have the chance to catch up. The most vulnerable will have been the least able to benefit from the efforts on online schooling. And then I would say another area that's really critical is creating the space um, uh, for economic reforms that are really critical to, to a longer term look uh, in Jordan, but also protecting the most vulnerable from any potential effects of that. So there's a lot of discussion and, and a work being done around electricity and water tariffs. But what does that mean for the most vulnerable? What might that mean for women with household based businesses? Um, and how would we protect them, but also support the government to take those critical uh, steps uh, in line with the IMF uh, approach? And we also engage in policy dialogue. So we are involved in the discussions on what a refreshed compact might look like and uh, what kind of bargains uh, needed to, to evolve. And then finally, for the UK, um, and not, not my, my area of leadership, but we have been through our G7 uh, leadership uh, very involved in securing agreements there. Um, and also, I think, in building the global evidence base. And I know that for, for me and my team in Jordan, we have really looked during the pandemic or what others are doing in other country and trying to understand from them because none of us have experienced this before. We can draw best practice from previous crises, but this was a very unique one. So we've really tried to look quite outward uh, beyond Jordan and draw in that experience and that expertise and those ideas. So a panel and a webinar like today is a really valuable experience for us as well. So thank you very much for inviting me. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Pippa. And thanks in particular for drawing out some of the um, multiple layers, I think, that, that we also want to address when we're thinking about um, women and the impact that they have. So including um, childcare and the protection issues and education, um, education concerns, um, all really important. Um, so thank you for, for drawing those out too. So um, let's turn to our final panelist, Abigail Hunt from ODI. So Abigail, um, who's one of the co-authors of the report, um, can you talk a little bit just about how the findings of the report chime with what we've heard today? And are there existing global policy, um, are, there, are the existing global policy commitments well-placed to support women? affected by crisis and displacement, given um, the challenges that we've been hearing about um, created through by, COVID, by the COVID crisis. Sure, thank you. Um, before I start, um, on behalf of all the colleagues at ODI, we just want to uh, extend a thanks to IRC, um, an incredible organization. And it's really an honor and a privilege to have had the opportunity to partner um, on this piece of research. So I'm gonna give everyone a, um, so to say whistle-stop tour of the research, I believe that the link has been pasted there in the chat, so please do um, go and have a look for the full detail. The research consisted of um, two main strands. Um, firstly, there was a, a survey which was carried out um, among clients of the IRC and City Resilient Futures uh, Youth Entrepreneurship Programme in Greece, Jordan and Nigeria between February and June um, of this year. And the aim of the survey was to better understand the economic impact of COVID-19 on uh, women affected by displacement um, and the wider um, communities uh, involved with the programme. The second kind of area of the study was um, an in-depth policy and financing analysis 
Um, and we looked at key commitments that have been made um, both in recent years and since the onset of the COVID crisis. And the aim of that analysis was to assess the extent to which uh, policy and financing measures have supported the economic empowerment of women um, who've been affected by crisis um, and displacement. And to do that, we looked at um, different policies and initiatives. Um, for example, global, uh, globally, we looked at G7 and the recent Generation Equality Forum. Um, we looked at the policies of uh, some bilateral donors, um, such as the UK's FCDO um, and Germany, and major financing instruments in the um, economic empowerment space, such as the 2x challenge. Um, so let me outline a few findings of the survey, which I think very much kind of reiterate and add to what we've already heard today. Um, I think the key kind of takeaway message is that um, women who have been affected by crisis and displacement have been hit by a kind of um, what we're calling a triple disadvantage. Um, triple uh, because it's COVID-19 um, displacement and gender discrimination that work together um, to uh, really pose great challenges to the economic empowerment and inclusion of this group. So the findings from the survey uh, evidence clear gender differences in the ability to, um, of women to earn an income, um, to be employed, uh, for example, in formal salaried work. So the kind of quality work that might give better returns um, and take on responsibility for unpaid care work throughout the pandemic. Um, we found uh, that women have been hit the hardest. So just to illustrate with some of the data, um, women have 47% lower odds of me uh, the men of having earned income during the pandemic, as well as 45% lower odds the men of being employed, unemployed or uh, being employed or self-employed. Um, and as part of this kind of triple nexus of challenges, uh, displacement also matters. So displacement has exacerbated the negative impact of the pandemic on economic opportunities. So in the survey, more displaced women than host community participants said that their economic situation has worsened during the pandemic. Um, and we also looked at some of the kind of wider indicators of economic empowerment, um, including kind of uh, control over economic resources. And what quite came, quite, came through quite clearly was that economic coercion um, or abuse was a challenge. So, for example, the survey showed quite clearly uh, in Nigeria that um, many participants had to give all or part of their cash to their husband or another family member, which really highlights that getting access to economic resources or income is not enough to secure economic empowerment. It's also about women's control over those um, economic resources. So all that said, on to the kind of policy response. Um, the main, I suppose, takeaway finding um, that I would share is that the pandemic has highlighted huge um, policy gaps. And certainly among the policy approaches that we looked at, um, we saw huge gaps in um, support to economic rights, um, inclusion, and uh, the empowerment of women affected by crisis and displacement. So because we kind of took a trajectory approach, looking not just at the pandemic, but over the last few years, what we found was in the women's economic empowerment space, there has been um, increasingly comprehensive policy and programming approaches, um, which could be said um, or could be attributed at least in part to the um, UN uh, high level panel on women's economic empowerment, um, which uh, was convened in 2016. You know, since then there was a real uptick in, in um, focus in this area. But, um, and here's the but for the purposes of this event today, what we also found that 
Nonetheless, is that many of these initiatives don't meet the specific needs and preferences of women affected by crisis um, and displacement. Um, and the challenges have been exacerbated through uh, the pandemic, as we've heard, but policy responses have not reached these women. So, um, for example, we found um, little evidence through the survey uh, whether displaced um, or host uh, women of receiving any uh, additional financial support. And this includes both state and non-state cash assistance or social protection, as well as remittances. Um, so in policy terms, you know, the survey was kind of loud and clear, you know, the support, these women didn't receive any support. It was a huge challenge. Um, and conversely, most of the support that was reported was very informal. So, for example, from family or friends um, or through other forms of informal uh, or locally based help. However, and here again, the displacement dynamic comes in. Fewer displaced women reported receiving this kind of financial uh, support from family and friends than host community women. So in terms of the kind of key policy gaps, um, again, you know, it's very much just a glimpse into what we have in the report. Um, a key challenge is the overemphasis, as we put it in the report, in global uh, multilateral and bilateral policy and financing on supporting women-led businesses and women's entrepreneurship, um, which, you know, is critical. You know, we heard and we, of course, we've got Annabelle on the call today, um, you know, support to business development is critical, but it has to be targeted to reach um, marginalized uh, women, including women affected by crisis and displacement, which is not currently doing, because a lot of the um, initiatives that we looked at focus on stable settings and a focus on formal business, for example, which doesn't reflect the reality of enterprise um, for many uh, women in crisis and displacement um, settings. And Little attention is given in policy to more um, gender transformative initiatives, um, by which we mean initiatives that can help um, recognise and tackle the underlying structural uh, reasons for gender inequality. Um, so, for example, by um, supporting displaced women's access to quality labour market opportunities, um, supporting unpaid care and domestic work, um, or uh, supporting uh, inclusive social protection or social norm change. So just to finish then, I mean, you know, it all sounds a bit bleak, um, but I personally, and we at ODI, have done quite a lot of analysis, as we all have, um, since the onset of the pandemic. And one of the things that comes out really loud and clear is that the pandemic has shown that what was previously unthinkable in policy terms, for example, um, across many countries, the rapid extension of social protection to previously excluded groups, is entirely possible. In many countries, this happened overnight. So it shows that it's both politically and practically possible. Um, and the global recovery, we think, um, presents an opportunity for a stock take and learning on what policies work and what's needed to build on this wider um, progress in the wider women's economic empowerment agenda that we've seen in recent years. But this research has shown that even though there's been some promise um, to support women's economic empowerment, it hasn't reached all groups of women, which is why it's time to take an intersectional approach, which is ensures that the needs and priorities of women affected by crisis and displacement are fully met. Wonderful, thanks so much, Abigail, and thanks um, also for ending on that note of optimism and um, what, what is possible. So, um, 
So let's um, open up for Q&A. Just a reminder to those um, listening in that if you do have questions, please um, type them into the Q&A chat box at the bottom of your screen. Um, so let's start with a couple of the questions that have come in. Um, so um, the first question um, is based on the research findings, what can international actors, including INGOs in the UN, and international finance institutions do differently to better support women affected by displacement and COVID. So I think we've had some ideas about um, the inclusion of women's voice and, and civil society actors, but um, are there any other suggestions on um, what, what these um, various stakeholders might do differently in this context? So um, perhaps uh, Pippa, do you, want to, do you want to take a go at that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think a lot's been said, and Abigail has 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 said there about um, really looking at rights and empowerment uh, rather than simply uh, uh, focusing on one part one part of it, sort of entrepreneurial, um, and thinking about the wide wider context within which uh, displaced women are operating. Um, and I think my understanding is that's what the intersectional approach means. Um, if uh, in, in, in uh, sort of plain English, it's about really understanding the environment that they have in and then focusing on their rights um, and their needs and their preferences. And it's very striking how far wrong we can get it uh, when we don't do that. Um, and I think there's been cases in Jordan where assumptions have been made about what refugees generally want to do um, and those assumptions have not been tested and have been wrong. So I think that really ground truthing um, and maybe pausing uh, before we jump in thinking that we've got the right answers is quite important. And that's quite difficult in a crisis in an emergency because you feel under pressure and, and processes can take a long time to get to get moving through. I think the other one that I would say is that, um, that, that we really from a donor perspective we really need to be pushing from the humanitarian side um uh, or pulling really development towards humanitarian and pushing humanitarian to look towards development as well because in, this is a, a you know jordan for example is already in a protracted crisis this is a, a layer of crisis on top of a protracted crisis so we've had an emergency on top of a protracted crisis um, and that means that we're going forward and, and a global economy that is struggling, um, that we that we need to really think um, much more, much more broadly and try and let go of some of our, I'll speak very frankly, some of our baggage um, and try to say, right, what have we been doing that's wrong and address that and look at uh, so hard reflection and research like this is really critical to encourage us to reflect on on how we can do better. Thanks. Wonderful, thanks for those thoughts. Um, Annabelle, if I can turn to you um, again, there's been some questions about what are, you mentioned the need for both mentorship and also financial support, that those would be helpful in terms of thinking about um, moving your, recovering your business activities. Um, can you say any more about the kinds of financial support that would be helpful? Have it, has it been, um, is it loans or um, grants? What kinds of financial support would be very helpful to you? Yes. Yes, Ma. 
Thank you for this opportunity to speak with IRC. I appreciate. So I don't I need I need their support. I need them to support me. So I don't want loan. Let them give me a grant. So support my business. So if they give me the grant, I can't be, I, even like now, because of the corona, I can't travel to go and buy my food item. So, so if I have the, the the money, the support, the finance, so I can be able and send the money to buy other goods. Wonderful. Okay, thank you so much. Um, I know there's been a few questions asking about uh, more specifics there. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, I think uh, while we have, uh, we probably have about six minutes left before we um, go. So we've got time for one or two more questions. Um, so let's talk about, there's a question here that um, is focusing, there's a couple of questions on the social protection pieces that have been discussed. So um, one question is, there's been quite a lot of discussion. This is from Chris Hurl. There's been quite a lot of discussion about the importance of social protection to women informal workers. Practically, how can donors or governments do this to people who aren't necessarily registered in the country? And uh, uh, an uh, uh, adjacent question I would say is um, from L or, or I, Hechi, um, from the gaps identified in the research, I think INGOs and the UN should be thinking towards supporting governments at national and subnational levels to decide shock responsive social protection programs. Um, so would you like to, so maybe um, Sarah and um, Abigail, would you like to comment on those points around just the, the limitations or the possibilities on the, um, on the expansion of social protection programs and making them more, more adaptive to, to crises that are emerging? Sorry, and I said two of you, so maybe Abigail, do you want to kick off and then we can go to Sarah? Yeah, so um, I will be um, completely honest that first of all, um, I'm not um, a social protection um, expert as others on the call may well be, um, but certainly the situation as I understand it is that um, it's extremely difficult uh, to, in many senses, to um, extend social protection um, to people who are not, um, I think it was uh, mentioned, um, registered in the country. I'm not sure of the exact uh, language that was used there, but that was in, uh, regist uh, registered and particularly in terms of informal economy workers. Um, however, there have been a huge wealth of um, kind of evidence efforts um, that have gone on amongst the research community. So the World Bank have got this kind of enormous compendium of good and best practice about, about um, adaptive social development. Um, here at ODI, we recently um, worked on a project um, looking at how social protection measures responded in the crisis. Um, and my colleague Jessica Hagen-Zanka authored a paper exactly looking at this question of refugees access. So that may be, um, for anyone looking for the detail on how to do that, um, two good places to start. Um, I suppose one of the key um, learnings that we found through this project is that um, the uh, political um, context is absolutely critical. Um, and while historically there's been huge challenges in extending social protection um, to uh, non-national groups, the COVID um, crisis has 
really created openings across many countries to be able to quite rapidly extend uh, particularly social assistance and in-kind um, kinds of social protection, um, such as food, um, extending health services, um, extending accommodations. And we've seen that in our work across many countries. So I think the great effort probably going forward from the pandemic is taking stock and saying, okay, what happened quickly? It wasn't always well planned, but it, 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 we rapidly extended. So how can we learn from that and think about how to adapt that to continually um, excluded groups? Terrific. Sarah, would you like to come in with anything from the Jordan experience there? Yes, thank you. Um, it is a very, very challenging issue, and in particular in the informal sector. However, um, we believe that if we educate women correctly as to their rights, then we hope that true empowerment can happen and they can actually stand up and protect themselves if the system is not set up in a way that is offering social protection for them, in particular in the workplace, in the informal setting. Where the government and the sub-government is concerned, it is absolutely critical to speak a lot louder as to the need for prioritizing social protection and in particular for women and girls. I mean, we're seeing a lot more of that, unfortunately, in Jordan when it comes to one of the, the major impacts of the crisis um, where we're seeing you know, younger, younger people going out into the workplace out of school. And that is something that really needs to be um, challenged and it needs to be reversed. Um, it is key to work with government. It is key to drive these practices from the ground up, as well as advocating for change at the policy level and hopefully meeting um, the correct balance in the middle. But there is a lot of work to be done. It cannot be done without the actual um, clients in the field, listening to them, having them participate and understanding what and how they can raise their voices in order to ensure that they are safe. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you to everyone who has um, shared questions and um, for our panelists for their um, perspectives. Um, so as we have 10 minutes left now, we're going to now um, go to closing remarks from David. Um, David, welcome. Um, it's great to have you here. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts um, really on just how we can move this um, agenda forward. And, and I should flag, we did have one question that we didn't get to. So perhaps you can address this in your comments as well, um, which is really about what's the opportunity um, with the G7 presidency and the momentum there. And um, how, can we, um, how can we capitalize on that momentum to, to push this agenda forward? Um, so I'll hand over to you. It's been very good to be with you and interesting and really want to thank uh, Noor and Sarah and Annabelle and Pippa and Abigail for some really excellent points. I'm incredibly proud of what Sarah and her team are doing in Jordan, but also our country teams around the world have obviously been dealing with this triple crisis of COVID, conflict and climate change. And it's delivered unprecedented human humanitarian need but also extraordinary innovation and delivery on the part of IRC and our teams. Uh, and it's really very been very good to get a chance to listen to this particular aspect. We, we like to think of ourselves, we, we, we've set as our aspiration to be not just an operational leader of the humanitarian sector, but also a thought leader. And it's in that context that we're proud to be the largest impact evaluation agency in the humanitarian sector and partnerships with ODI are really important in taking forward that thought leadership 
role. Um, can I also call out Noor and her colleagues um, at City? I am afraid I'm so old that I actually launched the partnership uh, with City in 2017 at the um, London office. And I think it's the first point I'd like to make is that partnerships like that with City are necessary for two reasons. One, governments around the world are in retreat from big problems, and we need the corporate sector to work with NGOs to pilot the innovations, to be the risk capital, if you like, for doing things differently. Uh, building back better is going to be meaningless unless we do things differently. And the second reason um, that we need partnerships like this is that pre-COVID, there were very good reasons to feel that there wasn't just inequality, but massive inefficiency in the exclusion or disadvantage that women felt faced in the economy. I just uh, remembered last night in 2019, IRC and Georgetown University uh, did a study showing that gender employment gaps cost the global economy $1.4 trillion, just the employment gaps in employment rates between uh, men and women. And in the same year, Christine Lagarde, when she, she was at the time the uh, head of the IMF, she put out um, a statistic saying that if the worst performing countries on gender equality actually achieved gender equality in employment and certain other economic factors, it would boost global GDP by 35%, which is extraordinary. So the pre-COVID position called for serious change in the way global financial institutions, uh, global uh, donors, uh, worked. Point one. Point two, um, the research, I think, is really compelling that you can't understand COVID if you don't have a gender lens. And when we say that IRC can't be a successful humanitarian organization unless it's a feminist organization, what we mean is taking seriously structural inequalities of power, opportunity, uh, and opportunity that face women and girls, actually, um, and that as we design programs and interventions, you have to take into account those inequalities. Um, the COVID crisis, I think, has made incredibly clear, not just that women um, have borne the greatest share of the caring burden. I've got in my head that 70% of formal and informal and informal care is done by um, women, paid nursing, but unpaid uh, care in the home. Um, but also some, some striking statistics about um, economic loss, which I thought um, Annabelle and uh, Sarah and Pippa spoke to very, very well, um, but also obviously the rising levels of domestic violence and intimate partner violence that are associated with uh, emergencies. I thought it was also striking um, that the research showed that a, a humanitarian enterprise which neglects the economic elements, in other words, only focuses on social services, is going to miss out very badly. And I'm really proud, Rada, you were a very big part of this after I joined IRC seven or eight years ago. Um, the, the traditional humanitarian enterprise has defined itself as keeping people alive until they can go home, uh, in the case of refugees or displaced people. Uh, so few people are able to go home because conflicts are long-term, that it's vital to have education and employment as a critical part of the humanitarian effort. A humanitarian effort that doesn't include those factors is going to fail. And now, for just as um, for us, I would say 30 or even 35% of our work is now in the uh, economy and education space, uh, rather than the traditional humanitarian uh, space. And the research also shows, I think, that we neglect the economic potential of women uh, at our peril, the world does. So that leads to my third point, uh, which is just to reflect on the discussion that we've, that I've listened to over the last hour. Um, and what I wrote down was structural problems need structural solutions. 
and there were four or five, I quite like lists. So there are four or five points uh, that I had in that. Um, in, in that. The first is the point that I think you made rather about gender equality laws. I mean, there remain a significant number of places where um, displaced women um, are at severe disadvantage. And so the law matters. Um, secondly, I, there's an important point that was mentioned in passing in the discussion about investment in frontline women's organizations. And I just want to say a word about that because that's often described in a rather patronizing way as quote unquote, building capital or building um, uh, capacity building. And at IRC, we've um, banned that notion of capacity building because it does suggest a one way sort of relationship in which the, outs the outsiders are able to give something to the insiders. We talk about sharing of expertise. Uh, we come to our, um, uh, the work we do with the expertise of uh, working in 200 field sites around the world, but we're highly conscious that the uh, women, all the clients that we work with, the, NGO, the NGOs that represent them as well, have their own expertise. And what international NGOs should be seeking to do is share expertise with local uh, partners. I think that's a far more productive way of thinking about it. Uh, third point, which I came through very strongly in the discussion, is there is a false choice between a safety net on the one hand and investment in economic potential on the other. The kind of uh, mentoring which uh, Annabelle mentioned, uh, the uh, startup grants and the business training that's part of the city partnership, those are investments in the economic future. And you, you can't end up in a situation where they are traded off against safety net support, which is absolutely essential when um, income flows are cut off in the case of something like the pandemic. Uh, fourth point that came through to me listening to you, Pippa, um, excellent points, is that the aid reform agenda in which donors coordinate their work is very important because um, the German government, uh, the uh, European Union, um, all have programs in this area, but we have to do separate outcome measuring, separate different ways of uh, bureaucratic systems. And the more that aid reform takes on a more coordinated approach to some of these issues, the more we're going to get higher efficiency and greater scale, which I think is, there's a, I guess what I'm saying is there's a danger that we're reinventing the wheel for each donor. And um, that is really uh, frustrating to put it um, mildly. Uh, let me just finish um, with a, a couple of points about where we go from here, because you, you invited me um, rather to say something about that. Um, I mean, I think basically we've got to take this these findings, this work on the road. It's really good for to, to, to just recognize the announcement that Noah made in the context of her remarks, that City are doubling down on this um, investment. Um, we've helped 3,000 people so far with the mentoring, the business support grants, et cetera, in three countries. Uh, we're going to be able to do more. Um, secondly, we need more partners for this, though, to scale the ambition, because the scale of the need is so much greater. And that says to me that... Um, there, there is a really important job in making sure that the results of this research are widely understood. Um, thirdly, I mean, there's uh, very difficult decisions, to put it in a very diplomatic way, being made by some governments about their aid um, packages. And some of those are to do with the fact that the COVID crisis has put new demands on the aid system. Um, in other cases, uh, I won't go into what's happening to the aid budget of certain countries, but the... Um, the, uh, the, the point I want to make is, not a, is to say that as the aid budgets around the world are refashioned, protecting those 
programs, whether they be targeted or, or universal, that especially help women and girls is going to be a really important lens. If, I, if, 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 if IRC had a million dollars for every speech that's been made about the need to tackle gender inequality, we'd be a 10 times as big an organization as we are now. We're a billion dollar organization. Um, the, uh, the need to protect the programs that especially help women and girls at a time when the aid budget is under pressure, I think is especially important. Uh, you asked uh, um, rather about the G7. I mean, there's obviously a hiatus in Germany at the moment while they form a government, but they are the next head of the G7. And it's really important that as the German presidency of the G7 think about uh, their priorities going forward, and COVID will, will obviously be an important part of that, any COVID package that neglects the economic dimension is going to be failing. And uh, if we'd been having this meeting a year ago, I would have feared that the health impact of COVID in the places we work would have been much greater than the economic impact. Actually, the economic impact has been greater than the health impact. I mean, the health impact has been real. Um, uh, the recorded figures are very hard to find. We reckon there's been 27 million recorded cases of COVID in the places that we, um, that we work. Um, but the, uh, and, and probably 600,000 deaths, but there's huge underreporting. But the economic impact has been absolutely overwhelming, not just the direct health impact. Final point, um, anything like this that needs to be taken to scale needs to engage the international financial institutions. And I think that the um, World Bank, the IMF, um, conceivably even organizations like the EBRD, European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, those African Development Bank, it's really important as we think about partners in this enterprise, partners in learning from this work, those, those international financial institutions recognize the connection to the local economy. And there was a question about this. The local economy comes in many forms in the crisis-ridden places that we're working. That connection to the local economy is the most sustainable change that you can build. And in all the talk about the way in which international financial institutions need to engage with the modern world, I hope that that is uh, recognized as being central and mainstream, not marginal. Thanks a lot for listening to me. Um, thanks a lot for the discussion. Thanks so much, David. Um, lots of food for thought as, as usual. Um, thank you uh, for those comments. Thank you to all of the panelists for joining us today and for um, all of the participants who have been listening in. The report um, link should be in the chat. There it is. Thanks, uh, Sarah, for adding that. Um, so please do take a look and um, I hope you all have um, a terrific rest of your days. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.